Today's guest on the podcast is Alan Aboud. Alan is a graphic designer and creative director, perhaps best known as creative director to famous fashion designer Sir Paul Smith for over 27 years. Since then, Alan and his creative agency have worked with clients such as MTV, Hugo Boss, H&M, Zara and many more. I met Alan at his studio in West London where he was finishing up a meeting with staff on ideas for the next project at hand. Alan spoke to me about how he has managed to shape a career for himself in such a competitive industry and the challenge of raising his two sons and daughter with the same Irish traditions he grew up with in South Dublin. Alan Abood, welcome to the London Calling podcast. You're our fourth guest. Thank you very much. Um, and I should probably explain a little bit more what the premise of the podcast is. It's mm-hmm. to um, get to know, I guess, some of the Irish people who are based over here in London, who've been living here for years or maybe just living here a short amount of time mm-hmm. and who are doing interesting or creative things and maybe just get an insight into what it's like to, you know, be an Irish person, you know, pursuing a career here and, mm-hmm. and maybe um, hopefully be able to compare between each person's experience, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the that's the hope, that's the idea. Um, so firstly, could you tell me a little bit about um, your bringing in South Dublin? You're the youngest in your um, family. Yeah, I'm right? the youngest of four. Uh, we, we, well, I grew up in, um, in Rathgar, which is just uh, about three miles outside of the city centre, and I went to school on the north side in a place called Belvedere College, which was probably more famously known for James Joyce and, mm-hmm. and Portrait of the Artist. Um, but the north side obviously was a very different place to what it is now, so it was quite an interesting upbringing in Dublin because you could actually see both, literally both sides of the city, mm. and they were very, very different. Um, so I was there in Belvedere from... I think 1974 to 1984, so yeah, it was 10 years, and then left school and started a foundation, NCAD, in 1984, um, and did a year of foundation, and then 85, started my first year of my degree in visual communications in NCAD. And I think that was probably the that that was the kind of catalyst about in terms of wanting, stroke, needing to to go to London mm-hmm. is in the fact that the design community was very, very small in Dublin at the time. Um, it's nothing like it is now. Um, so you were very much faced with, with the reality of, of emigrating if you wanted to kind of do something ambitious. Mm-hmm. So inevitably it was either London or the States. And um, I didn't really have... Uh, I, I had just actually I just come back from from doing six months on a J one in in America and I loved it, but um, I didn't really have the urge to go there in terms of in terms of um, a career initially. Mm-hmm. That kind of happened afterwards, but um, I was you know I, I kind of got to the stage where in NCAD you could have gotten your degree in visual communications and you could have coasted it a bit. It was a very it was quite an easy course, mm-hmm. um, so I was kind of faced with the fact of you know I could stay in Ireland, and then go to England to to look for work, mm-hmm. or I could actually be a bit more ambitious and actually stop NCAD and start studying in in England, in order to kind of bed myself in because I think so many people at that time 
when they emigrated, it was, you know, they'd left university and they'd go straight into the working world in England. And, it, you know, it was, it was quite difficult to, mm. to integrate. It sounds, it sounds weird nowadays, but it was, it was a tough move. Mm. So um, there was a girl who was a couple of years ahead of me in NCID who had made that move. It was a girl called Susie Godson. And um, she made the move into St. Martin's. And uh, one of my tutors recommended having a chat with her. And she kind of literally told me all about the, about the college, etc. And I was very, very interested. So I applied um, in 1986 and got in. Somehow I managed to get in. It was a very competitive course to get into. Um, but I had to kind of make the sacrifice of actually starting my degree again. Mm -hmm. um, but it was quite a small sacrifice in terms of at least getting into one of the most prestigious schools in, yeah. in London. So that's kind of how it started. So being in... That's located in Soho, am I right? It was. It was. It was. It, it basically was split... We were split between three sites... Um, the old St. Martin's, which was Charing Cross Road, which is now Foyle's Bookstore, mm -hmm. and the old St. Martin's Covent Garden, which is now H&M, and Central, which was um, which is now derelict, actually, Central School of Art, which is on Southampton Road. Mm -hmm. So we kind of did bits of the course across the three sites. I suppose 80% of our time was, was Covent Garden mm -hmm. on Longacre. Those early days in London, uh, how would you describe the kind of scene at the time or what kind of experience did you have uh, it was it was like it was a bit of a gift you know you know studying in soho was soho was a, a, an amazing place at that time mm. um there was no shortage there was no east london scene um it, london was not as um populated with with um nightlife as it does as mm -hmm. it has now and soho was the only place to to kind of to, to be in terms of clubs and bars etc so we were very very lucky to be able to kind of eat sleep and drink in the same area pretty much so mm -hmm. it, was, it, it was it was a very exciting time um it was much more entrepreneurial it was a lot more interesting stores it wasn't a glorified high street where did you live when you initially moved over here i first uh battersea was my first um place which was the halls of residence for st martin's and you know, looking back on it now, we were it was so kind of luxurious to to be living in a in a high rise block overlooking Battersea Park. So we did. Um, I did, I think, nine months there, and then got to know a couple of friends in in the halls and on my course. And we got a house in Balham, mm -hmm. and lived in Balham for probably three years, and then moved to the Fulham Road for a bit and then uh, Barons Court and then Notting Hill. So I kind of settled in Notting Hill after I'd left St. Martin's in 1990 and I've lived here ever since. What is um, one of your favourite places to spend time here in London nowadays? You know, is there a particular spot or area that you, you kind of are drawn towards? Um, in terms of relaxation or in terms of stimulus? Um... Maybe each. Um, relaxation, like I, the, the, the great thing about London are the parks. Mm. Um, and the two main parks near me is uh, Hyde Park and, um, and Holland Park. Mm -hmm. So I kind of spend a lot of my time um, in those kind of areas because it's just, you know, 
it's just a bit of breathing space. Mm. Um, so I, I do love the kind of the scale, particularly of Hyde Park, and yeah. and also the ability that if you kind of go for a walk, you can actually take in a, a gallery as well in terms of the serpentine. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of nice. Um, and then in terms of research or stimulus, it's it's bookstores. Um, but unfortunately, the kind of bookstores are all disappearing. So when I was in St. Martin's and then I'd left St. Martin's, it was Charing Cross Road, which, you know, had an amazing book, a bookstore called Shipley's, which was, I think, what they based Harry Potter's shops on. It was mm-hmm. just this kind of tiny little, um, tiny little secondhand bookstore. Um, and then there was a store called Zwemmer's, which was a couple of stores up, which was run by this woman called Claire de Rouen, who then in turn set up her own bookstore on, further up on Charing Cross Road. <laughs> so it was always really nice just to be able to kind of go in and look for inspiration because, you know, in those days, the internet just didn't exist. Mm. So, you know, if you were going off to research projects, the only place you could go to would be a library or a bookstore. Yeah. So um, in this little study here, you can see some of the some of the books I've got a I've got a whole lockup around the corner with really another twenty kind of cases. And there's of books. more outside in the. There's lots. There. Yeah, I I I'm just I you know I've got a real love for books, mm. and I just think you know it's a it's amazing in this day and age that book sales haven't gone down in the in the kind of technological era. Yeah, well, I think maybe things are even appreciated more when they're tangible now because yeah, for some people at least, mm-hmm. you know, it's nice to have the physical. Yeah, so uh, you know that's my biggest kind of indulgence is is good books. If you were to estimate how many books you have here, in here I don't know. I, I we did an audit in our old studio before we moved out, and, and I think we estimated that we had something. We had something like a hundred grand's worth of books based on their kind of resale value, mm-hmm. um, and I, you know, we I think there was probably about. 10,000 mm. books. Is there any particular, I know it's a hard question, books that you come back to for inspiration frequently? Yeah, I've got that that corner there is my, are my specials. There's a book on Dublin. There is a book on Dublin, a yeah. Portrait. Uh, that's a book from the 60s, actually, um, which, again, shows Dublin in a completely different life to what it is now. Mm. There's another one there, Ireland in Colour. Yeah. And then one for you, which is the cherry blossom one oh, in really? Japan, okay. um, which was Lee Freelander. So yeah, they're 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 um, kind of little ones that I kind of default back to. Um, and there's a lot of books on maps, which I'm very um, I love mapping and cartography, just just in terms of from from a graphic perspective. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so there's there's a couple of favourites that I kind of keep on looking at. So out of the different things that you do in your career between photography, graphic design, creative design, which is kind of the, is there one that's more primary or mostly more um, at the forefront <coughs> than the others, or do they all combine to kind they, of... Yeah, they combine. Um, I went to St. Martin's um, enjoying typography. Mm-hmm. Like, typography was my first kind of love um, when I was um, finishing school and, you know, when I was when I was in Belvedere, I used to design the posters for the school plays and things like that, and, and typography was something that was really interesting. Um, and then when I went to St Martin's, there was a photography tutor 
who was a guy called Dermot Goulding, and he was from Dublin, and he had emigrated in the early 50s mm-hmm. from Dublin. He used to work on you know, the Irish Times as a, as a staff photographer, but then moved over, over here, and he became photography tutor at, uh, first of all, at the Royal College, and then at St. Martin's, and he was a guy, he was responsible for teaching people like Gilbert and George photography. He was there when Johnny Rotten was in in St. Martin, Martin's, Sade, all these kind of people, and he had a, a wonderful knowledge of of photography. And um, he, yeah, he took me under his wing, and he, he um, really kind of introduced me to the world of photography and how to marry up photography with typography Mm -hmm. so it's kind of grown from that um so i had no interest in fashion Mm. uh, or fashion advertising when i was at st martin's and the only reason why i migrated into that was my work with with paul smith Mm -hmm. so it you know ultimately it's it i kind of flip between pure typography and photography and then through my experience with fashion advertising I ended up doing a lot of work in, you know, with ad agencies. So, mm-hmm. what makes us kind of special as a as a studio is that we are grounded in graphic design, but we still we also work in advertising. So it's a nice hybrid. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the time, over the years, we can flip between those different types of projects. So I, I, I personally don't see much difference between the two because I I'm always grown up feeling. Um, the world of commercial art, as it was called back in the 40s and 50s in America, where a commercial artist would do, you know, would do graphic design and would, would create advertising. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's that's always what, what I felt was <clears throat> was odd in the fact that people kind of separated things like that over here. You mentioned some of the relationships you've had. Um, there you mentioned Paul Smith being one. Um, just it seems to be a recurring theme throughout your career is the relationships you developed with with certain people. Is is there one in particular that is the most impactful? Well, I think uh, professionally, the one that's been most impactful, obviously, is Paul Smith. Yeah. Um, because I don't know quite what way my my uh, career would have gone if I hadn't started working with him. So, as I said, it, originally my my background was design and typography. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was looking for someone who who would still do a lot of the design work for the company, but you'd still need to lay out an ad and you'd still need to to go to a photo shoot, etc. So um, my relationship with Paul, which started back literally when I finished St. Martin's in 89, uh, that was probably the equivalent of a 30-year BA Mm -hmm. or MA course um, in the fact that the, the things that he taught me by allowing me to work on the projects that that he needed um, executing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think inevitably that is the biggest influence. How did that collaboration come about? How, how did you first meet him, I guess? Um, I Well, he was looking for a designer and his offices were on the on the Floral Street, which is the back of St. Martin's, yeah. um, which is our main place in, in Longacre. And in our degree show in 1989, um, he sent... Uh, one of the senior buyers of the company to, to just to see who's available and who's around. So she um, shortlisted a bunch of us mm-hmm. uh, to go and, and be interviewed for for this specific um, freelance position. And um, 
I was lucky enough to be kind of chosen, which was great. Mm -hmm. um, and then I didn't meet Paul until I actually started working there. Um, you know, it was a couple of weeks before I met him, and we just hit it off immediately. You've lived in London for about 30 years now, maybe over 30 years, is that right? I think, yeah, I think it's a bit more. I, I, what's, I move 86. Do you or have you ever felt a sense of community with other Irish people who are living here in, in the UK? Um, your sense of nationalism is heightened um, when you're away from from home. Mm. I think you you um, you really kind of gravitate towards key events and you kind of you, you know, it goes down to whether it be a, a football match or a rugby match or whatever you you know you you kind of gravitate towards your your own during those times um i wouldn't say I, i've actively kind of worked in the irish community mm. uh, or or kind of wanted to work in the irish community but things like that just just heighten your sense of sense of belonging mm. um and it's a it's a very important thing for me. I've spent several years trying to get a a documentary off the ground, pretty much based on the idea of of home, and and what does that mean to people? Um, because I didn't, I'd never moved back to Dublin. Um, I had children in London, and particularly my two eldest boys, who are now twenty two. Uh, twin boys. Uh, I was always very interested in in that national, well, not not national, but the sense of, sense of belonging. Mm -hmm. um, even though they were brought up in London, you know, they'd spend their summers in Ireland with their cousins. They'd go to the FAI training camp in Dublin, to St Joey's down down past um, uh, Dean's Grange. Uh, so they would be Irish in everything but accent. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting then and now the way first-generation Irish have a bit of a... They've got a sense of, of, of seniority over Irish people who haven't necessarily grown up in Ireland. So it, it's it's something that I've been trying to kind of um, get off the ground because I do feel that, that it's a very important conversation, particularly now that you know, you've got so many second-generation Irish here in America or everywhere mm. like that, that I, I, I find it quite disparaging when first generation kind of look down and, you know, call these people plastic patties. Mm. I had, uh, we actually I had an occurrence of that a couple of weeks ago with a, a friend of mine um, who's an Irish photographer called Boo George um, and he had a, an exhibition in London and I think one of his, my son came with me and one of, one of the people who were at the event literally called him a plastic paddy because he was, you know, talking about all things Irish and I think we were talking about the football or whatever. And uh, I just, I took quite a, you know, I took quite an offence to it, but not in, a, in an aggressive way, but it's it's just so inherent in, mm. in, in first generation Irish thinking that they have a right to feel Irish mm. 100% just because they, they, they've grown up there. I, I find second generation Irish and onwards have more patriotism um, because of the fact that they haven't had the opportunity to to, to be around it 24-7. So do you think that um, a feeling exists when you live away from Ireland and that you have a greater sense of appreciation 
um, or you have more interest in kind of Irish culture or the arts or yeah, does like that exist? it does. Yeah, like I've I've got the pricey of this this documentary I'm, I'm here, and I can I can give it to you afterwards. But basically, what the proposition is 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 to create some kind of documentary study on what it's like to feel a cultural bond to a country that some have never seen. I think that kind of sums it up mm -hmm. quite nicely. So, you know, the, 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 the goal is to analyse how people have a sense of belonging to a place where they may never have lived, but their ancestors have. So, you know, we what we wanted to do was, was, despite growing up in one culture and environment, I really wanted to understand what it's like to feel closer to another culture and how it affects one's relationships with the people from your adopted country and your home country. Mm. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but... It does. Um, you know, it's it's just it, it's it's something that I really really wanted to understand as to you know why why there's a lot of cultural stereotypes that first generation Irish mm. have in their head. You know, there was um, even even Black Irish like it's not necessarily just about second generation Irish. It's like Black Irish, like one of the guys on the Irish team, um, Christy. I think he plays for. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's was a all, defender, isn't he? Yeah, there was all sorts of racism targeted at, at him after we got knocked out by Denmark. And you're kind of going, does this really happen nowadays? Mm. And and you know, you go back to the old days of Jack Charlton employing, you know, second generation Irish who speak with an English accent, but they still put on the Irish jersey and mm -hmm. they still put a hundred percent in. So. I just find it it's just so annoying mm. to to see that it, it, it's discrimination yeah still um but I'm I'm desperate to try and get this off the ground um it was interesting there was an article in the guardian a couple of weeks ago uh an interview with Martin McDonough mm -hmm. the the director, director who's yeah. up, you know for all these awards at the Oscars and he is second generation Irish he grew mm. up in in London, and he was recounting stories where, again, people were questioning his Irishness just because he just he doesn't have an Irish accent. Mm. So there's you know there's a whole sea of people who who've encountered a lot of a lot of bias over the years. I'm glad you've made that point because that was one of the reasons behind um, establishing the podcast in the first place. I've only moved to London in the last four or five months my parents had lived here in the 80s and I was born here as a result mm -hmm. um, so for me it was interesting because their experience that they would describe to me of being in London in the 80s was a time of you know there were still the, the, those signs on pub doors of mm. no dogs no blacks no Irish and yeah. that um, the feeling towards the Irish seemed to have been a lot more different than what I have experienced since I've been here you know and it feels as though also there are a lot more opportunities for Irish immigrants um you know, within British society, you know, mm -hmm. as opposed to, you know, the kind of limited jobs that you could get when you came over here in the 70s or 80s. Yeah, like my, my ex-wife, her her dad came over in the 50s um, as a labourer. And, you know, he, he recounted those, you know, the no blacks, no Irish sounds like folklore nowadays. Yeah. But he literally, you know, experienced it and, and, and end up, ended up typically Kilburn, ended up he'd lived in, in Hendon for the rest of his life but um it was like that and what was weird was um I think that racism uh breeds racism in itself mm -hmm. you know because I think 
older generation Irish are also probably quite racist inherently, mm. but I suppose in some ways you have to kind of, you can't kind of condone it necessarily, but you can kind of begin to understand that if you've been kind of downtrodden, then it's, it's um, dog-eat-dog in a way. It's, yeah. it's a weird situation. Um, I, I experienced it a bit when I was here because in those days it was still the time of the IRA bombings. Like the, there was an IRA pub bomb um, at the bottom of Longacre when I was at St. Martin's. Um, I can't remember what, what the street was, but it literally just on the junction of Leicester Square. Um, so you still felt a, a sense of um, national embarrassment mm -hmm. in a way. Um, and then on, in those days, um, which you would probably never remember, when you were flying between Ireland and and England, you would have police um, on the... There wouldn't be border control. You'd have police just by the luggage carousel mm -hmm. checking your passports. And there was many a time that I was pulled over and questioned, just A, because of my my odd non-Irish surname and um, and just the fact of wanting to know what I was doing. There was occasions when a couple of TDs were pulled over. It was there was a there was a law called the Prevention of Terrorism Act and I think it was was it twenty four no forty eight hours. The police could hold you for forty eight hours with no reason. So it was yeah, it was a, it was quite an intimidating time. That sounds alien to me. <laughs> yeah, and you kind of felt as like literally you would feel like a criminal showing your Irish passport, mm. walking into Heathrow. But literally, there, for, for those who were listening, they would remember there was two lecterns side by side mm -hmm. with, a, with a police officer on either side, and you'd have to walk between the two of them, and they would be judging whether to pull you over just to, mm -hmm. just to kind of clarify who you were. You've mentioned uh, the idea for the documentary. <laughs> um, I wonder, when you go back to Dublin nowadays, yourself, having lived here for 30 or so years, and when you bring your children back... What does home mean to you? It still feels like home, like I'm actually going home on Friday. Um, yeah, Dublin still feels like home. Mm -hmm. um, I think the thing is, when you go, the one thing that I find when you go home is everything is so slow. Mm. I don't know whether you experience it, but like literally, you kind of, when you're living in London, everything goes at a million miles an hour and you mm -hmm. kind of get back to Dublin and it's just, you're kind of, pulling teeth yeah. for a few days you settle Being down Cork, it's even more well more no as so. I was just going to say like <laughs> Dublin's bad enough and then yeah. and even the, my a lot of my family grew up in Cork mm -hmm. and they a lot of them don't like Dublin because it's too busy and I'm going really fantastic <laughs> um, so yeah it's it's it still feels like home and it's, it's you know it's nice to kind of get back and I think um, a lot of my generation emigrated mm -hmm. um, and, and a lot have come back but there's still a, a, a good bunch of us that, that only see each other at Christmas time, you know, in terms of school friends, etc. So um, it, there is, it is still a, a feeling of home, mm -hmm. um, and particular to, the, to this thing that we, we talked about, the documentary. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's just an important thing for me. Is it something that strengthens over time, you think? The bond, that feeling. Of, well, yeah, of, it goes back to the fact that you know, the longer you're away, the more you, you know, yeah. the, the, you still feel you feel more. You don't feel distant, but you long. For, you don't. I'm not longing to move back to Ireland. I'll clarify that. <laughs> but you do, you do miss it, and yeah. you, you know, it's a, it's a sense of belonging. Basically, mm -hmm. I think that's essentially what it is. So no matter living here, 
for X amount of years, you still you know you're still Irish, mm-hmm. um, and I find that really important to to kind of to understand mm. and and to kind of to kind of cherish really. Great, I think that's the perfect way to, to finish up. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. No worries, thank you for asking. Cheers. And that was our conversation with creative designer Alan Aboud. You can find out more about Alan and his work at aboodaboud.com. Four episodes in, I want to take the time to say thanks to everyone who has listened so far. I've never done a podcast before, and I have to say I'm really enjoying speaking to such interesting people, and I hope you're enjoying listening to them. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with a new episode, so keep an eye out for that on the Irish Post website and all of the Irish Post social media platforms. Until then, take it easy.